Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Mehdi Sangibaji. I'm a host with the New Books Network. And today I'm very pleased, excited, and honored to have Professor Critchley here. And he um, doesn't need really introduction for the people in the know, but here we go. Professor Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research. Uh, which I recently found out uh, um, among its founders were John Dewey and Thorsten Duplin, which is is amazing. And uh, Professor Christie has written a lot on very diverse issues, all cool, all good. And um, he has written on... Uh, the Ethics of Deconstruction, um, Derry Don Levinas, uh, very little, almost nothing, Death Philosophy Literature. He has written a book uh, specifically on the death of philosophers and how they died. Some of them hilarious, hilariously tragic comic. Um, ethics, Politics, Subjectivity, Ethics and Derry Don Levinas and uh, Contemporary French Thought. Continental Philosophy, a very short intro- introduction. Uh, Continental philosophy, a very long introduction, actually. Also, on humor, the name speaks for itself. Uh, things merely are philosophy in the poetry of Wallace Stevens. Uh, infinitely demanding uh, the book and the, the book of dead philosophers on Heidegger's being in time, how to stop living and start worrying. Those most favorite books of all time. Uh, and the book we are going to talk about today, The Faith of the Faithless Experiments in Political Theology. It came out in 2012 from Verso, and the, by the mercy of God, nobody decided to do a podcast on until I received, I, I came along. <laughs> so, um, Professor hey. Christie, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. So, um, Professor, um, you call me Simon. Absolutely. Simon, you have uh, introduced yourself as one time, at least, as half that obsessional, inhibited, self-hating Englishman who hates England. And I'm sure not always is true, but the, the last part, self-hating, uh, the, the last part, uh, hating England, that comes in handy. There's a, um, there's a, um, um, Quote from Rousseau, uh, we may get to uh, quote him uh, extensively, probably. Um, also talking about uh, how the English are wrong to uh, trust the parliamentary uh, parliamentarian way of looking at uh, politics. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, my first kind of marginal question is, how does you being an Englishman uh, who writes English, um, um, help the book. Help the book? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, my hatred of England has been consistent throughout my life. So <laughs> it, informs, it informs this book as it does the, the, you know, the flip side of love. So it, you know, the hatred conceals, a, if you like, a sentimental attachment to the place I'm from but enormous disappointment with it so uh, I don't think that whether this book is particularly informed by that I don't really know no not really no there are more there are more <laughs> more, more English loathing books than, than this one but <laughs> I don't see it I mean I you know I I have an awful lot to say about this but the um I, um, you know, everybody happens to come from a place. um, I see no particular reason to celebrate that fact. Exactly. uh, Whoever it may be. And um, that's just a fact about me. So I'm from England. And uh, the nice thing about being from England is you can't really feel good about it unless you're... (laughs) Or, uh, you know, all all malevolence. Uh, So it's... uh, it's a good nationality to have because you can't, you know, we we fucked everybody over at one point or another. So, yeah. So I have a very ambiguous relationship to, and it's partly informed by my my family, uh, all from Liverpool, and Liverpool has always seen itself as a city that is in England but not of England. So that um, 
a port city. Yeah, right. So that, that that's very important to some kind of you know, background sense of where I'm from. And to that, in, in the, with that in mind, that's sort of why I've, you know, New York is is home for me, and it's a it's a convenient home because it's um, it's also a port city, and a city that's not a capital city, but a city of capital, a city of commerce, uh, and culture, and um, and money, yeah. and that more that makes you know there, there's something more honest about that than uh, living in a living in a a metropolitan capital city. Exactly. Uh, so um, the subtitle of your, uh, this book is uh, Experiments in Political Theology. In it, you go yeah. through many different political experiments and try to situate them in their own time, as well as how they can help us or what they could mean to us. Um, you complement them, you criticize them, you put some of them together, you find uh, familial kinship between them. Um, at some point, was there a, like a, a, a big chunk of what you liked in history of uh, political philosophy that you had to put aside to like close the book, or is it is it almost all of the? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I yeah, I, I think I. Um, I mean, uh, I think maybe I invested too much time and love in in Rousseau. Uh, although I, I'm fascinated by Rousseau, and there's lots of things that I don't really take, you know, I don't really deal with. I mean, I could have spent a lot more time thinking about Hobbes, which in a sense yeah. feels, in a sense, more relevant because of the the way in which we've, um, you know, our, our kind of new love affair with the state and. Uh, as a kind of person having a personality and uh, the various, I mean, what's happened in politics in the last, the last years, particularly with COVID is a kind of reinforcement of uh, state sovereignty, yeah. which is uh, where, where some like Hobbes comes in, but, you know, so yeah, could it be more on that? And um, um, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it just, it happened the way it happened. I can tell you how it happened. If you, like to sort of story of the, the the genesis of the book, or at least the way it was written. Okay, so can we do it in the, in in a form of question? Because I had this question in mind uh, to ask you if, um, like, um, so w- would you be comfortable calling yourself an anarchist, as in a noun form? Uh, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yes, I, I would. I mean, you know, with it, as long as that's understood as a as a kind of, I, I mean, I'm interested in in kind of weak and hopeless forms of anarchism, really. Yeah, I know. Um, dressing up in, you know, black outfits and, you know, you know, taking. Not really. I'm more interested in people digging in their gardens and uh, working things out together and. Uh, and the kind of social practices which make that possible, you know, traditions of mutual aid, which don't really, the, the, the interesting, yeah, so, so yeah, I'm happy to, uh, happy to think of myself as having an attachment to the anarchist tradition, yeah. Right, so then the question uh, I had was like, was there an aha moment, was there a Damascene moment for you uh, um, that you said, okay, I, I think I'm an anarchist. So was there like a bruised thing? Like, was there always in you or just came out suddenly? Um, I think it emerged over time in many ways, the prehistory of the, the prehistory of the, of the book and the prehistory of, you know, what happened, what I was doing before the book was the, you know, an interest in, not an interest, a, a, a sense of what was wrong politically. And um, and that for me meant working within a, a conventional uh, party structure. So I worked for many years in a very kind of ordinary low-level way in the Labour Party in um, in Britain, in, in my in my local constituency. And um, the, the, the failure of that or the way in which, you know, 20 years of defeat uh, of the Labour Party led to victory in the form of 
Tony Blair. Blair, yeah. And the and dealing with that, and then and then a sort of a, a resurgence of interest in more radical forms of politics in the in the late nineties, which was very much linked to where I was in um, uh, the University of Essex at the time and living in England and and books like Hart and Negri's Empire, you know, had a, a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion around books like that. And there was a kind of radical turn then, which was focused around, you know, movements against globalization. Um, people were uh, obsessed with, uh, the Zapatistas, um, with what was happening elsewhere, you know, in, in Iran, in, in all over the place. So these kind of this sense of which there were low-level popular movements and forms of association that became possible, and were being, you know, and we were thinking that through in in the two thousands, and that the book sort of comes out of that um, of that sequence, which in a way reaches a kind of high high watermark with the Occupy movement in yeah. um, 2009. And, um, and I was, you know, I was very much, um, not very much involved with that. That sounds too self-aggrandizable. And I was trying to, you know, trying to help insofar as I could. And, um, and then, um, you know, and then I think an increasing disaffection with with politics, which is common to, I think, a lot of people over the last, you know, 10, 10 12 years. It's, um, so I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a complicated question. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so starting with Russo, um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned something which is, um, to me, sounded very original, um, that a lot of uh, Rousseauists, um, Focus on that. That's the idea of decalage, like the displacement, the uh, moments of tensions. You say ambiguity or seeming contradiction, and yes. you 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 maneuver on that. Uh, can you go into a little details of what it is and why is it why it is important? It's, yeah, it, it's the um, it's really following up from a, a brilliant essay by Altizer on a, on Rousseau's social contract, which. Um, I hadn't really read until the early 2000s. I had it, but I'd not really read it. And I was becoming, you know, I've always been fascinated with, with Rousseau, just at the level of, you know, the texts and, 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 um, and what they're doing and the kind of contradictions that are involved in those texts. And, and uh, uh, Althusser puts his finger on a kind of series of displacements, slippages in in Rousseau's in Rousseau's texts, and uh, um, and so I became fascinated with that and began to. Uh, in fact, I only taught this once. I was teaching Rousseau, I think, in two thousand six at the new school, and um, and then um, you know I think that Rousseau is <laughs> a much more important figure politically than than Marx say politically in terms of how we think about politics and uh, what it means to be involved in what, what politics actually involves and the institutions of a, of a political regime and um, and yeah so that was you know and it goes back further than that I mean but, but Rousseau I find you know in terms of the the self-consciousness of what Rousseau is doing, the extraordinary intelligence and self-awareness that he's doing something which at the same level is, is preposterous and is involved in all sorts of contradictions of which he is completely aware and yeah. you, you follow that. And the, and the contradiction that I'm kind of following through in, in, um, in the book is the contradiction between politics and, and religion, the, the idea of politics that Rousseau wants to defend is an idea of association or popular sovereignty, which is the way in which a people declares itself into existence, if you like, and that requires no exterior uh, support, religious, metaphysical support, and yet at the same time, he engages in this 
um, this discourse on what he calls civil religion. And this began, got me thinking about the relationship between politics and religion in, in Rousseau and then more generally in, in the world. And so that was, uh, that was kind of what got me, got me started, I think, in, yeah. in the well, You also call him the, like, the most self-aware of uh, his own fiction. Which is amazing. Like he he knows the fiction he's weaving, and uh, still he believes in it. Yeah, or still he 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 does it. Yeah, he's um yeah he's he's to that extent he's. <coughs> I think Rousseau and Nietzsche are the the two most, if you like, self conscious artifices of their own enterprise. They they know exactly what they're doing, and um, there's an extraordinary reflexivity in what Rousseau's up to, which comes out in a particularly particularly extreme way in his autobiographies, where Rousseau is kind of at war with himself. Um, Rousseau, judge of Jean-Jacques, you know, this this second autobiography where he so the the idea of I think you know in many ways being a not a philosopher that's a bit too much being a, a thinker is you know is always to be a a war with yourself and so if you're looking for progenesis of that then Rousseau is is very good to spend company very good yeah. company time in. and uh, we can learn a lot excellent and um, one of the things you really like him is the catechism of the citizen um, by the way I found something and uh, you also um, uh, mentioned Sergei Nechayev and um, yeah. um but uh, I, I researched him and a little bit, and uh, he has a catechism of a revolutionist. Um, and in it, um, uh, I, I want to read the, just just the first sentence of his catechism of the, the, the revolutionist. He says, uh, number one, the revolutionist is a person doomed. I found out that doomed is, uh, in uh, his original um, Russian was obrichenyi. I'm looking forward to all the Russian speaking people telling me that I butchered the, uh, the word. Um, you know, it, apparently in order usage, um, the, this Russian word means uh, consecrated also. So doomed and consecrated. I found it fascinating that even, even uh, somebody as, as ascetic as him knew that um, they could go together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, that's interesting. A kind of a doom, which is a sacralization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, he came to a rather unpleasant end. And there's there's stories about Nechayev about whether whether he even existed and whether he oh really oh yeah and whether he, he was um, whether whether the that that text the Catechism of the Revolutionary is um, is intended. Sincerely, or is a kind of parody? There's been there's some debate about that, but yep. it, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating text, and also I think a deeply um, it's it's instructive in terms of warning us about the extremities of if you like a political speech. Right? There's a you know Nechayev as there's a kind of you can see the kind of spirit of Nechayev in you know, the kind of enthusiastic excitement of various, you know, political figures, whether they're on the right or the left. I think that should give us some pause. It should yeah. give us some... Uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting text yeah. as well, very short. Very short, yeah. Oh, but Kunin yeah, but, makes fun of him, right? Like he says, the, you you sound like a, like a Chechen uh, gorilla <laughs> right now. Makes fun of him after he, he writes... Um, the, Catechism, apparently. Yeah, I think it, I think that's also I think worth thinking about that the that there's something about the um, if you like the the extremity of political speech, you know, the uh, which has been accelerated and exacerbated by um, the way in which we engage in these abstract forms of in, uh, abstract forms of activism on online, yeah. which of course just up and people say more and more excessive things oh, yeah. and um it's uh it's to that extent you know we need to cool down a bit <laughs> and, yeah, no, and yeah, you know, definitely 
actually look at what's happening rather than make judgments about it. I think the so I think Nachayev is a good early early instructive lesson in in what to what to avoid in forms of excessive political speech. Yeah. In, in um, Jules and uh, the, the movie, there's a, there's a story that um, uh, a, a lady starts writing to a soldier like randomly that they don't know each other, and and little by little they they they, they fell in love, they fall in love, and it gets. Um, like um, um, harder uh, for them to stay away from each other, and it gets like a burning love in both of them. They have never met, <laughs> and and the love between them is getting worse and worse. Like the the, the burning uh, part of the love, is, which is amazing. Uh, like uh, the same thing with the online uh, activism that you're saying. Like it, the, the yeah, and also yeah. with the Julie Jim is that is is that Godard or is that Truffaut, oh, no, Truffaut, that... Truffaut. Okay, well, Truffaut, yeah, but the, um, yeah, I mean, the the, the film Both which really... Two people yeah. fell, fell in love with Jean Moreau. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Go on. Uh, uh, so, yeah, um, uh, there's one thing that um, you have said other, in other places, and uh, obviously it's very important to you, and Russo says it also. Um, Taylor Russo sees or acknowledges the motivational inadequacy of a purely philosophical account of politics and offers the picture yeah. of a political religion. So uh, from philosophy, from the, uh, the, um, the theory to, actually com to actual commitment. See, um, that is that part of what he calls religion? Because it's not actually religion, right? Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's. Um, I mean, I, um, I'm. I'm broadly against political philosophy, right? In the sense in which um, I don't really know what a lot of political philosophy really does or thinks it's doing. And um, I, the approach I take in faith of the faithless is, um, it's, uh, it's, it's genealogical. It's historical. Yeah, historical work is. It's hugely important, not necessarily my own, but other people's. I think that there's a, we also require a, um, a, a formalism, a certain formal understanding of, of, um, of the nature of political institutions. Rousseau gives us a very uh, compelling picture of that in the social contract. And then we need, uh, we need two more things. We need, uh, we need a, an account of, uh, of practices, an account of customs, <clears throat> what Rousseau calls uh, les mœurs, you know, mores. And we need, uh, we need some theory of persuasion. We need rhetoric uh, in order to persuade people of um, why they should adopt a certain political view. So those four elements of genealogy, formalism, um, customs and um, and persuasion, I think, are what takes the place of political philosophy um, as it's usually understood. And I, I stand by that. And I think Rousseau is very good, is, is very instructive in that regard. And I think the, the, the key thing for Rousseau, for me, maybe the, the key thing in his work is that you, don't, you can't get anywhere in politics without an account of, uh, of habits uh, of of limus, of morals of um, of practices of actual things that people actually do yeah. um, in social life and you have to uh, the task of a uh, a theorist if you like or a task of a a thinker is not to eradicate those practices in the name of some you know revolutionary transformation but to take those practices, observe them, understand them with the, with the kind of detail of, a, of an anthropologist and then to try and see if they can be molded into something else. Um, so a, re a religion in that sense will be just, you could say would be the name for the, that, that total structure. Yeah. You know, um, religion would be that which would uh, persuade people to act in a certain way would give them a kind of a deep motivational commitment. So I, I begin, you know, in not, I, I assume in this book, but 
it's it's argued more clearly in infinitely demanding which is the book needs this book that you know the problem we, the problem that we face is a motivational deficit in western liberal democracy and how do we face that and that requires a, an understanding a, a theory of ethics and uh, so that's kind of where i begin from yeah excellent um so you also say to understand politics, we have to uh, begin from sacred violence. So um, uh, Rousseau talks about the, the citizenship, the politics, and the religion, but uh, we also have to talk about the violence because that's that's the three main topics you're covering, right? So sacred sacred violence. Um, um, you uh, name some of these. Um, modern um, ideas in politics, uh, you name them in the book in relation to sacred violence. I'm just going to name them if you want to cut the page and I can find it. I follow you. Um, sorry, uh, the, the part about, uh, <laughs> sorry, I have to find and then write the number of the page, but can I read the, the uh, if I read the part, you, you probably remember what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you talk about uh, Zionism, Islamism or Jihadism, military neoliberalism, and social democratic conversion. You mm. you obviously have um, um, a lot to say about the sacralization of um, all, all uh, political ideas, uh, but especially uh, violence, right? So... Uh, in other places, you also make this, this distinction between um, what you call passive nihilism and um, active nihilism. I think it, uh, they're in the same vein, um, I suppose. That's also that helped me a lot, actually, with uh, understanding violence, because I'm working on political violence in, in my uh, PhD thesis. So... Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you like, uh, you can... Uh, Talk about a little bit about uh, passive versus uh, active nihilism. Okay, well that that that, that that's easy. I mean that's um, I mean that distinction I kind of borrow from Nietzsche um, in the notes to the um, Will to Power, and um, he talks about um, well you could be I mean you could be a you could be a theologian you could believe in in God and uh, that God is presence in kings and queens you can you can believe that um you could um but the situation that Nietzsche describes is one where he thinks that the process of enlightenment has led to a dissolution of values and that dissolution of values uh produces a kind of shock or an effect um which is the which is the shock of, of nihilism, the the uncanniest he calls it in Wilson Power, and uh, so Nietzsche isn't endorsing nihilism; he's describing it as a pathology of um, of the modern world. The, the modern world is culminated in nihilism, and to affirm to to say to say that all is nothing, all is lost, is the is the nihilist position, and he associates that philosophically with the the work of Schopenhauer, uh, with whom he had complicated relationships. <laughs> but so, 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 he, so the difference between active and passive nihilism is that the if we begin from the idea that there is there's nihilism, we're living in a nihilistic world, then um, one response to that is passive, that we just say, well, everything is nothing. Um, we'll just turn ourselves into a little island in this sea of troubles in this kind of uh sterile promontory as hamlet would say of the world and um we engage in you know practices of self of pleasure of self-improvement you know and i've got this whole understanding of you know kind of new age western new buddhism. age practices yeah western buddhism as a kind of passive nihilism which doesn't make any kind of excessive demands and i think it's a misunderstanding of religion but that's that's by the by an active nihilism which is that if everything is nothing then we need to tear it down we need to destroy it and that's the kind of um 
Nechayev position or in, in some yeah and I think they're both wrong <laughs> so uh, so uh, there's, there's that so I think that the passive nihilism is a, is a very good diagnostic tool it makes a lot of sense it's very attractive mm. you know um, everything is falling to pieces the world is the world is at war and I can just focus on myself and yeah. Um, yeah. That, what makes me and uh, make myself into a little island of of bliss and active nihilism is the attempt to tear that that down and i think the i mean nietzsche's nietzsche's uh uh what would you call it hypothesis or idea is that um you know there could be a, a revaluation of values or suggestion. Um, which, which would be an overcoming of nihilism and it's and that would involve something like eternal return but it's never really spelled out in completely full terms in Nietzsche's work. It remains suggested. Yeah. One of the problems I have with the layman uh, understanding of Nietzsche is that uh, he said God is dead. I said, no, he said we killed God. Now what? We should think of something else now. But um, yeah. everybody thinks about the first part, which is God's dead. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, which is just basic Christianity, God is dead, God died last Friday, you know, it was Good Friday. <laughs> good Friday. Uh, what do we do now? So, but the, for Nietzsche, it's, it's, uh, it's um, I mean, Nietzsche is, um, you know, it, it's a, he's a hyper-moralist, you know, he's, he's, he, he detests morality, um, Christian morality, but what he wants in its place is an even more kind of intense moral position, a kind of aff affirmative um, notion of valuation, that's what, which will be based upon ideas of power and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Which you, you sacred violence. Oh, go on. Oh, oh, sacred violence. Um, so you go first. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, the, you, you actually say uh, even that was precariously um, uh, mentioned by Rousseau. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, aware aware of that problem, and um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, for Rousseau, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, the book is. How would I put this? I, the stuff about sacred violence is really the way in which. Uh, I mean, you know, this this is written in the in the early two thousands, but it's still sadly true. Is yeah. the way in which um, politics has become increasingly linked to forms of metaphysics, forms of, um, uh, you know, quite traditional metaphysics, and where uh, citizens or participants are kind of cosmic warriors who are then justified in, um, in acts of, of violence, of, of war, and that these are kind of, these have a, a quality of, of sacredness. So like the examples I listed are different ones that we could talk about what i think that that reveals is um uh I, i'm in a, i'm against i'm deeply suspicious of sacred ideas of violence but i think it's, um, it, it reveals the um for me the uh the fictional force which is at the basis of uh political organization political institutions and we need to uh understand that and then think about what to do with that fictional force we live to live in a political world as we do as we have to is to live in a world of fictions things which were made uh what hobbes calls the the artificial man right the leviathan, leviathan yeah. that's a fiction that's something we do and uh, we have to understand that historically in terms of its relationship to practices, morality. And then if we want to change it, we have to think about how that might be changed in very concrete terms. Excellent. So let's get to um, a little more sunny side of the book. Um, millenarianism, the movement of the free spirit. I love that part. That was my most my favorite part of the book. Um, comes in. Um, uh, situationism comes in that's um, so what's your interest in um... so uh, mystical anarchism now this this began in a uh, an interesting way in many ways 
the, the book is, I mean, it, it's experiments in political theology, um, but the, the, the four pieces in many ways are, are quite distinct. They're quite separate. They could have been, you know, four small books. I mean, the book on, um, I mean, the, the Russo part came out as a book in, on its own in German, which I was, I was quite pleased with. It looks quite good as a little book on Rousseau. Mystical anarchism, uh, I began to get interested in um, the relationship between politics and, and sin, really, and the idea that, um, you know, whether you're, um, and, and, and kicking off from people like, like Carl Schmitt, that uh, the difference between, say, authoritarians in politics and uh, anarchists okay. is turns on uh, their conception of, of human nature and whether you think human beings are wicked or you think that human beings are decent and good. And if you think they're wicked, you end up as an authoritarian. If you think they're good, you can end up as some kind of anarchist. And then um, so I was thinking about that in relationship to um, uh, and then I began to someone I've, I've really enjoyed reading over the years is John Gray someone yeah. who's really not known in, uh, not known in any, any kind of interesting way in, in, in North America and um, his book Straw Dogs is an incredibly powerful uh, critique of, uh, of liberalism um, and he you know he comes back to an idea of human beings as defective, as sinful, as, as flawed, as um, what he calls homo rapier, rapacious animals. And then uh, I, I, met, I met John Gray at a certain point in maybe 2007 and uh, talked with him. And then How I was already go? reading it. Oh? How did that go? I was pretty good, actually. He had all sorts of interests in, we were in the same kind of poetry, and uh, he was very interested in Wallace Stevens, and I'd written a book on Wallace Stevens, so we, we had a lot to talk about. It was good. But he was, he, he was very close to and influenced by this man, Norman Cohn, who wrote this really definitive book called Pursuit of the Millennium um, in the late 50s and then revised in the late 60s. And really, this is an account of how there is this... Um, there is this... Um, there is this phenomenon of what he calls mystical anarchism, which he, he traces to the Middle Ages. And uh, this idea that we can live in a kind of sinless union with others, in a kind of free brotherhood or sisterhood, and, um, and there'll be no power relations and uh, there'll be consensus and everything will be fine. And uh, for my Norman Cohen, this is the... This is the this is the most terrible kind of delusion in in politics, um, and so if, uh, he traces a story that goes from um, from um, the, the the heresy of the free spirit or the doctrine of the free spirit, the movement of the free spirit in thirteenth century in corners of northern Europe in particular, through to sixties uh, radicalism through the idea that we can just get rid of um, morality and we can live in a kind of sinless communism. Um, and he, he, so he, he, and that's the story he tells. And this got me interested in, in the phenomenon of mysticism, which, which has had very significant implications in the last, the last 10 years for me. So I, uh, I've just finished a, uh, a book on, on mysticism, which um, is, it's, it's, it's in the finishing stages. It, it's all written, fiddling with it. But, um, so I, it began with this kind of critique of mystical anarchism, and then I just began to really rethink that. And, so, and then, then I, I remember doing this in, um, this, was, this was a strange moment. I, the, the, the core of the mystical anarchism chapter, I, I wrote very quickly without, uh, teaching any of the material. Um, uh, one December, um, must be around 2000, maybe 2008, and uh, 2007 maybe. And then I went to um, Toronto 
Toronto. I remember going to Toronto and it was a very, very cold January. And I presented this material in this kind of art space with a, and the crowd really, they really got into it. And I thought, oh God, there's, there's something here. This is, you know, people get really excited inside of mystical anarchism. So I then began to think more about that. And, um, and then, you know, the end of that chapter, I use this idea of mystical anarchism as a way of thinking about what's, what was going on in, in, in the art world and what's called relational aesthetics on the one hand, and then with, uh, and then with movements like the um, invisible committee and forms, um, forms, of, uh, forms of anarchism, anarchist organization that were happening particularly in France, but also elsewhere in the early 2000s. And I see the same mystical anarchist temptation in recurring in different forms. It's, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. And you call them, uh, some of them, like uh, the Invisible Committee um, and stuff, you call it mannerist situationism, right? Yeah, yeah. Mannerist in the sense in which I think, you know, mannerism is interesting in the sense in which by mannerism here, I mean, in terms of, say, the history of art, the way that uh, someone like Caravaggio stands to um, Michelangelo or to, to Raphael, in the sense in which in, in, in Caravaggio, you've got the same images, the same, say, biblical images, um, but they're bloodier, they're more violent, um, they're more extreme, and they're more distant from the actual religious practices. So it's it's something as 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 a possibility as it were recedes um, recedes in distance from us as, as a lived possibility. The the reenactment of it becomes more and more violent and more and more extreme. And so I think so mannerism I see as a um, so the invisible committee are a kind of mannerist situationist group. They want they want to be like the situation but the social reality of that in you know France 15 years ago allowed you know allowed a more minimal form of expression to that and that that then led, led them to kind of really exaggerate uh, the rhetoric becomes more inflated and I see that a lot with um, contemporary the contemporary revival of, uh, of, of Marxism the, the, you know, Marxism becomes more manneristic, more extreme and exaggerated and violent in its rhetoric as it recedes as an actual possibility, okay. uh, lived politics. So I think that's a real problem that we just end up ventilating these, um, uh, these positions. And uh, I think it's also a whole, the whole set of phenomena linked to that on, on the right, you know, that we could think about, you know, uh, those endless stories about, you know, the race war that's coming to the, the civil war, the race war that's coming, and it's gonna be like, book of revelation, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be, gonna be war and bloodshed, and then the pure will survive and the impure will be. And that, that rhetoric kind of infects left and right, it seems to me, and it's, um, it has to be understood and diagnosed um, but I think it's uh, it's a problem. Let's just say. Yeah. And part of it, um, I just want to mention very fast. Uh, you um, you lovingly talk about Maquette um, Poet, and um, reading it, I was I was thinking, I was thinking, oh my God, this is this is Mansur Alaj. Actually, Alaj lived like three hundred years before that. But like to hack and constant hacking and hewing yourself so that you're emptying yourself so that God you become God. I mean, one of the reasons they they killed him, uh, uh, um, Mansur Alaj, so badly was he kept saying, I'm God, and I'll have in, in, in yeah. Arabic, yeah. I'm very interested in that, 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 that tradition, that, you know, that tradition yeah. it appears in, you know, uh, early Islamic mysticism, mm. in um, Christian mysticism, in Jewish mysticism, in all sorts, of, a sort of a sense of, uh, of, of self-deification. Yeah. And that's, uh, that has led, you know, the, the mysticism book that I just finished is really kind of where that goes. Uh, I've been really trying to think, think those questions through. But I take it seriously. I mean, I think the, 
there are ways in which the 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 attempt to become God, become divine, is 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 compelling insofar as what you're trying to leave behind is an idea of self, a kind of a decreation of the self or an undoing of the self, uh, in order to be incorporated into something other than yourself, something larger. So I think the um, I mean, self-defecation is, is very easy to criticize. It's more interesting to kind of understand it. And it's a, it's a rich and deep and interesting tradition. Very quickly, do you see it an antidote to uh, Western Buddhism? Well, it could be if it was taken... I mean, I, I like my religion like I like my, my yogurt, kind of thick and creamy. <laughs> and uh, I like my coffee, which is heavily caffeinated. And so I think that the um, the problem with Western Buddhism um, isn't a problem with Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism is its own really complex tradition, set of traditions that originates as a kind of reformation movement uh, against uh, forms of Hinduism, and it, you know the texts are are fascinating. And um, but the way in which that is adopted. Um, in 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 the West, I think it you know it makes me extremely suspicious because it seems to allow for a form of uh, yeah decaffeinated religion in the name of spirit in the guise of spirituality. I mean, largely I'm I'm against spirituality talk, and I'm very much in favour of religion talk because religion is thick and creamy and difficult, and it's different in different places. I mean, there are all these. Uh, uh, similarities between religious traditions but there are these huge differences it's the differences that are as important so the the western buddhist position is kind of to take all of the difficult <laughs> metaphysical stuff out of religion and just turn it into some kind of undemanding well, vague spirituality which is actually usually just selfish in my view you call, you, you call it the bible according to me Right, <laughs> which yeah. is a fantastic yeah. title. Yeah, I and uh, I was going to write a book uh, called Against Buddhism at a certain point, but it never happened. It, it didn't really have. Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't work. But it was a nice idea. Would have been nice. Uh, <laughs> I don't have that much against Buddhism. That's the thing. But I'm against the kind of. I'm against the the way in which, um, if you like. The individualization of religious practice in places like the United States, the emphasis upon forms of uh, spirituality, moral betterment, but only in this atomized way, and how that actually really is, is a mask for, for, for selfishness and uh, a complete absence of forgiveness and mercy when it comes to others. If there's one thing that I, if there's one thing that I really take from um, the uh, the Abrahamic faiths, um, it, it's mercy, forgiveness, um, and human beings screw up. That, that's for sure. In which case, they if they if they repent of their sins, they're forgiven, and that's uh, that's the striking thing for me. You know about the uh, the New Testament, regardless of everything else, that people will come up to Christ and. Uh, ask for various you know things or ask i've heard that you do these great things you bring back the dead you turn water into wine and he will say well do you repent of your sins and say yes and if that's sincere then you are forgiven and you give everything away and you live a christian life that's uh, and of course that's not what people want to hear they want their sins forgiven without changing anything <laughs> yeah. terrible of course. yeah yeah, uh, which brings us to the second most important uh, historical uh, figure in your book, I suppose. Um, that's uh, the dude uh, formerly known as Saul, uh, oh, yeah. a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, under the law blameless. Mm -hmm. He's an inquisitor who uh, was whacking these new, uh, new fanatics of the Christianity. He decides to go to Damascus, of all places, and then on, on the way he sees an apparition 
who is not Hamlet's dad, by the way. But um, yeah. so he, he sees an apparition, says, uh, "Who are you?" And says, "Well, dude, what, what are you asking my people for? I'm, I'm Jesus Christ." And says, "Oh my God, you're real!" So he changes. He changes, yeah. and he becomes the one of the most. He founds one of the most radical churches in in the history of Christianity, I suppose. Why is he so important to Heidegger, uh, Badio, um, uh, Agamben, you? <laughs> I'm guessing Zizek because he, he's, uh, he, started, he's, he writes about everybody. So um, why? Um, for me, it's, um, I think, probably for two reasons that the intrinsic interest in in Paul's letters that as as the founding documents of Christianity, in which they are the oldest documents of Christianity, which precede the Gospels, um, and the um, the strangeness of of what he says, you know, um, that, you know, you should, how should you act in the world? You should act. Um, in the world as if it were not, you know, as if it were not, in order to orientate yourself, direct yourself to um, to the world which is to come, which is also not. There's a kind of there's a kind of um, double nihilism in Paul, which is uh, really just figuring that out, the radicality of that, and um, its social implications. For example, Paul has no interest in the family and in society. You know, if you're if you're married, well, fine. But if you're thinking of getting married, don't get married. Uh, remain in the condition in which you were called. He says in Romans, remain in the condition in which you were called and wait. So this 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 disposition of the, this messianic disposition of of waiting. Um, and then the second reason is that um, you know I've had a long-standing interest in in Heidegger, and I'm sort of a sort of a Heideggerian. Um, um, and when I read um, Heidegger's lectures on Paul, then a kind of um, you know the at a moment of a sort of a Damascus moment, thinking, "Oh yeah, of course, the whole structure of Heidegger's thinking in 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 being in time is is a is a redescription of of, uh, of Paul's Paul's letters, and it just makes much more powerful sense. And also, you begin to see Heidegger as a kind of messianic uh, messianic thinker um, in ways that are both dangerous and compelling. So that that's the second reason. So I used Paul to kind of rethink Heidegger's entire early work uh, in ways which I think are really more compelling than the ways in which they normally, the ways in which Heidegger is normally understood. So, yeah, and um, that would be a kind of partial answer. And Paul is just, you know, Paul is just fascinating. And um, here you've got an idea of religion as really small scale churches, a kind of set of anarchist communes sprinkled across the Roman empire, which are at war with that empire. And um, so Paul is, you know, if you want to think about politics and activism, then you can do no better than read St. Paul, it seems to me. Yeah, God as an anarchist, right? God is the, yeah, God is the kind of anarchist. That's yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I would have I have like um, twenty more questions, but I, I would have to, I would have to yeah. let you go. Just one last one, if uh, possible. Um, the 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 gist of the book: non-violent violent, uh, non-violent violence, and that's very important to you. So, yeah. if you go um, ahead and tell us what it is and how to achieve it, please. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. It's um, a little bit of background on this that the um, the um, in infinitely demanding, I I worked out. I think I mean to, to my satisfaction, to, you know, a theory of ethics and a theory of how um, ethics is orientated around what I call an infinite demand an infinite demand which 
um, a subject accepts, takes into themselves, and then forms themselves as a uh, as an ethical subject. And I try and describe that in in detail. And I was fairly, still fairly happy with that. And then I tried to link that to a whole theory of politics in infinitely demanding, which was um, is fine. There's some good stuff in there. There's an interesting reading of Marx, I think, in infinitely demanding. And um, and then I end up with this. Uh, embracing a position of nonviolence, generalized nonviolence. And then really what happened was uh, talking with um, friends in, in New York and uh, some, some students who were, who were long gone, and, but very interesting generation of students were sort of taking me to task on this and saying, well, you know, uh, uh, a generalized ethic and politics of nonviolence is, is pointless because uh, we live in a violent world. So, um, you know, as, as I think Ray, Raymond Williams said, said uh, it's, it's a great phrase where he says, uh, to say peace when there is no peace is to say nothing. To say peace when there is no peace is to say nothing. So um, an affirmation of nonviolence is kind of empty. So can there be a relationship between a kind of a general ethic of nonviolence yeah. and politics, which can be strategically violent. And how would you think that out? And that's what I try and do in, in the last chapter uh, against, um, against, on the one hand, you know, forms of simple pacifism, and on the, and on, on the other hand, against uh, forms of discourse which, which celebrate violence in this kind of uh, manneristic way. And that's the way I'd see someone like Zizek is kind of, you know, yeah, violence is cool. Let's smash things up. So but is there a way, is there a way of, um, of engaging in, um, you know, if you like the good violence that's against violence, is there, is there a way of thinking about a formal war that would be against war? And I, I followed that through by, by developing a, a, a much more anarchistic reading of, of Benjamin's critique of violence, and then and then looking at the strange relationship between nonviolence and violence in, in Levinas's work, and um, I think the the position that leads to is 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 on the one hand there is an ethical commandment to nonviolence to uh, to peace, and but that doesn't exclude the possibility, doesn't exclude the possibility that there could be a necessity for certain acts of violence at certain times. Those acts of violence can't be celebrated or justified. They just might become necessary at certain historical junctures. And as um, so I was just trying to make a, make a case for thinking about the relationship, relationship between nonviolence and violence in, in those terms. And that's what I was trying to do at the end of the book. Yeah, uh, whether I was successful, but it's uh, it becomes a question. What do I say? Let's see. It's um, you know, it's it's how we think together. Um, it's how we think together. This this infinitely demanding conception of of ethics with um, the necessity to be involved in strategic acts which might be violent at certain junctures and not to be and so not to use non-violence as a kind of blanket position this is always this happens with this always happens with with protests there'll be an non-violent protest will begin in 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 tehran or in 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 um in kiev or whatever it might be and uh, and and then provocateurs will uh you know mix with that crowd and then there'll be some act of violence, some will get, someone gets beaten up or whatever it might be. And then uh, the media will say, well, you know, you, you, you're hypocrites, you proclaim nonviolence, but you engage violently. I think we need, so we need a more, a more subtle and a nuanced understanding of, of, of violence and, and the occasions on which that might be necessary. Yeah, contextualize it, yeah. yeah. Excellent. From one bald faceless man to his fellow bald faceless man, I thank you profusely, uh, Simon, and uh, hope we can do it again. Uh, Sorry, I didn't hear that. We've been dressed alike.
Yeah, kinda. I do. I do. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I just uh, want to quote Dr. Corner West um, for his, our listeners. Dr. West says he loves Simon Kersley and he reads him. Dr. Cornel West reads um, incredibly, relentlessly, and religiously, and I think everybody should do that. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much, Mehdi. Thank you very much for speaking to me.